You may be seated. I'll invite you to turn again in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We've been teaching a series on God and miracles, and for the last several weeks we've been talking about miracles in the church, and we want to um, tag on to, where, to some things that we've said before. Jesus, after the disciples, uh, after he had appeared to the disciples and, and breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit, uh, we see the evidence in their lives of a change. In other words, they were born again. Jesus then told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, but wait for the promise of the Spirit before they go. He said in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you'll receive power after you, uh, you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and then you shall be witnesses. So they'd received the Great Commission, but Jesus said, now you're going to need equipment to, to perform and uh, to complete that Great Commission, and that equipment is the baptism or the power of the Holy Ghost. So they're all gathered together, and then the, in the Acts chapter 2 it tells us that um, the Holy Ghost is poured out. Um, they begin to speak in other tongues. It spills out into the streets. The crowd comes together and Peter preaches to them and says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. who said, upon my uh, servants and handmaids, I'll pour out my spirit and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Uh, that's a part of the prophecy. And we looked at that, looked at uh, Joel's prophecy in, uh, uh, in its entirety, talking about the time or the, the dispensation of the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. The work, the days where the Holy Ghost would work. And uh, 3,000 people got saved as a result of uh, the preaching on that day. In Acts chapter 2, it tells us what happened following that. It says uh, in verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. We can summarize this in three things. They walked in love toward one another. They continued in the teaching of the, of the disciples. The teaching of the Holy Ghost is given to the apostles. And they continued in prayer. And it said, And fear came upon every soul, verse 43, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Now it tells us again in chapter 3 where the, the man at the beautiful gate was healed. Uh, 5,000 people get saved as a result of Peter preaching about the name of Jesus and Jesus being crucified. And it was his power that uh, caused this uh, crippled man that everybody knew. He was laid daily, and so everybody was acquainted with him. And uh, Peter preached that it was the power in the name of Jesus that caused this man to be healed. Brought, Peter and John are brought before the, uh, the Jewish council, and uh, they're questioned and, and uh, um, uh, have to give an answer for what they did and how they did it, and they tell the council about it, the name of Jesus, the fact that he's raised from the dead, and, uh, and so forth. And so the, the council, the Jews don't like that too much. And so they threaten him not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 4, it says in verse 24, and when they heard that, they were let go and uh, related to their own company what the chief priests and elders had said. And when they, the crowd, heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. That means they're all praying together. In other words, nobody is leading them in this prayer. This is not a prayer that's written out. They're all reciting one after another. This is them praying together in the Holy Ghost. It's the only way it could work. Them praying together in the Holy Ghost or in the Spirit, in other tongues. And here's the Holy Ghost giving us the interpretation of what they prayed. And it, uh, we'll skip down in the middle of it. Verse 29, it says, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word, by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done in the name of thy holy child Jesus. Now, folks, I want you to get this. The Bible says when we speak in an unknown tongue or pray in other tongues, it says we're praying the perfect will of the Father. Notice what the Holy Ghost gives us record of is his will to pray. To pray for the moving of the Holy Ghost, specifically healing miracles. 
Now, with that being the primary, uh, with only one exception, the only one uh, example of the Holy Ghost initiating a prayer and then interpreting for us in a known language what that prayer is about, how long do you think it would take us to pray in other tongues before we tap over into the same will of God to pray? How long do you think it would take us to speak or pray in other tongues before we start praying for the move of the Holy Ghost and the healing power of God to to be manifested? If that's what the Bible tells us is the Holy Ghost uh, instruction for them to pray, because God's intent then is the same as His intent is now, and that is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Remember what Jesus said. He said, now before you go... Wait for the power of the Holy Ghost. So what is the Holy Ghost inspiring the church, the early church to pray for? The power of the Holy Ghost. They've already received him, but they're praying for the Holy Ghost to move. Well, when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and spake the word of God with boldness. Verse 33, and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. What kind of power is that talking about? Chapter 5, verse 12, by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest dared no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women. We know that's the will of God, don't we? Then it says, in so much, and notice it says in so much, not and. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women, insomuch. In other words, there's a connection between believers being added to the Lord and what he's going to tell us in verse 15. Insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about into Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. Now, folks, what I want to get across to you and what we've been teaching on for the last number of weeks on this is when the Holy Ghost has control of the church, and when I say has control of the church, I mean specifically has control of their prayer life. The sick are healed in the streets. Now, this record has to be given to us for a reason. I mean, if God's just sitting it there saying, well, this is what it used to be like, but it can't be like that for you, that's cruel. It's got to be a reason for why it's there. It's got to be a reason for the, the details that are given to us about what, are brought, what are brought about the operation of the power of the Holy Ghost. It's got to be there for a reason. We also looked at James chapter 5. James chapter 5 Beginning in about verse 13, it says, Is any sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church. And let them, the elders, pray over them, the sick, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Now that's the part most everybody focuses on. The prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. But then verse 16 is also attached to that. Confess your faults one to another. In other words, walk in love. Don't let any unforgiveness get in the church. Confess your faults one for another and pray one for another that you may be healed. See, verse 14 won't work without verse 16. Well, verse 15 won't work without verse 16. The prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. That only works when the church is praying for healing. See, we've made it about who's got a great anointing. 
Who's going to be God's showman? Who's going to be the person that God uses as some kind of sign or wonder to the rest of the body of Christ to show he's got the power? Folks, the power is in you. The power is in the body of Christ as a whole. Confess your faults one for another and pray ye one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then in verse 17 of James chapter 5, it gives us an example of what kind of prayer the Holy Ghost is talking about praying. It gives us the example of Elijah praying for the rain, which is the Old Testament example of the moving of the Holy Ghost. That cannot be coincidental. In other words, he's saying to the degree that we pray for the moving of the Holy Ghost and pray for the healing of the sick, that's when, he, when and how healing will flow in the church. You judge this for yourself. Would it be fair to say that healing, the healing power of God, as, as the principle is identified in Scripture, would it be fair to say that the healing power of God is flowing in the church to the degree that the church is praying for it? If that is true, that's scary. Let's turn it around a little bit. If the healing power of the church is flow, or if the healing power of God is flowing in the church to the degree that you're praying for healing, that gets even scarier, doesn't it? Because most of us are dependent on somebody else to do the job. Most of us want somebody else to do the work, whatever work that may be, whether it's the pastor or whether it's somebody else behind the scenes, and we just want to come and watch the show. But that's not the way that it works, folks. It's not the way that it works. Now, last week, I need to clean something up. Last week, I talked about an example of when I was uh, ministering before we ever started the church. Beth and I were ministering for a Methodist pastor, uh, ministered uh, for a week in his church in upstate New York. And um, he knew a lot more about God than he was able to preach. He knew a lot more about the Word than he was able to share with his congregation. So I asked him about that. I asked him, uh, how do you do this? I mean, that would seem to me to be like prison. So how do you do this? And he, he made a statement, uh, a comment that I used. Uh, he said this to me. He said, well, he said, Mike, what it comes down to is I feed the sheep and entertain the goats. And I made the statement that sometimes I feel that way too. Sometimes I feel that way on Sunday mornings. Now, folks, let me, let me go into that a little bit further and show you what I'm trying to get across. Because in, uh, in my 30 years of pastoring this church, it's been about 30 years since we started the church, there has not been anything that I've said over the 30 years that's created as much buzz, buzz as that sheeps and goats statement I made. <laughs> Nothing. Not a thing. Now, most everybody took it in a good-natured manner, but not everybody. So let me explain some things to you. First of all, I'm not trying to fix something. I've told you forever that you're the best congregation in the world, and I mean it. I would not trade my church for any other church that I know of, of any size. I recognize that you folks have a desire for the Word. You're committed to the Word, and I understand that, and I appreciate that. As my wife was so kind to point out, anybody that's willing to come listen to me speak for an hour and 15 minutes on Sunday morning has to love God. Now, you attach whatever you think was intended there. I'm just going to leave it alone. So I recognize that. But let's talk about where we live. Let's talk about who we are. Let's talk about the day that we live in. 
We live in a day when those who claim to be committed to God go to church on average once every three weeks. That's how it is, nationwide. Of those that consider Foothill Family Church to be their church home, we have about 30% that attend every week. We have 10% that attend more than once a week. Now, I realize church attendance is not the only mark that there is or should be to gauge whether or not we're committed to God or, or, you know, a lukewarm group or whatever. I know that there are people that uh, drive from a distance and they can't come more than once a week. Sometimes they can't come once a week. They'd like to, but they can't. I understand that. Other people can't drive uh, or aren't comfortable driving at night or come from a distance and don't want to drive that far at night. I understand that as well. And folks, I'm not talking about just being here. Although we have to recognize that the Holy Ghost did inspire Paul to write that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And he indicates that that's more and more important the closer we get to the end. So there's got to be there for a reason. Got to be. But again, it's not just about church attendance. I'm very well aware that some people, uh, some goats attend every week. See, it'd be really, real easy for us to say, well, the, the sheep, the ones whose hearts and attitudes are right toward God are the ones that have come all the time. That's not necessarily the case. We've got goats that come every week and sit there puffed up because of this, what they think about their knowledge of the word. It's not a matter of just when, you, when or where you are. If we're talking about an attitude toward God. And like I said, church attendance can't be the only factor in, involved. What about giving? If you're committed to God and committed to his word, you're going to be a giver and a tither, Right? Well, of the people that consider Foothill Family Church to be their church home, we've got about 45 to 50% of those people that we estimate are tithers. Now, the national average is less than 10. Well, I attribute that to people being sold out to the Word. I mean, let's face it. If you're going to trust God with your money, that indicates that your heart is in the things of God, Right? But we can't ignore the reality. We live in a day where the church, by and large, is lukewarm. We live in a day where the church, by and large, doesn't even realize the principles that I'm trying to teach and have been teaching over these last few weeks about the responsibilities that we have as individuals for the move of God. Furthermore, we might as well face facts. There are a lot of people that are never going to be reached apart from a move of the Holy Ghost. Uh, Earlier in the series, I was teaching on uh, miracles, and somebody, uh, well, didn't tell me, told my wife. But apparently they they are either friends with or have communication with some other pastors or another pastor of a big church, much larger church uh, than ours is. And, uh, and they said something about how that I was teaching on miracles. And, and he responded and he said, well, the Bible says that a wicked and evil generation seeks after a sign. Now, folks, I got to tell you, that's what I consider to be part of the problem with the church. See, I'm not looking for miracles to believe in Jesus. I already believe in Jesus more than the guy that's accusing me of being a wicked and an adulterous generation. I'm looking for miracles because Jesus said that's what it's going to take to reach the world. That's a part of the works that he said that we would do. Now, if the church, if the, meaning the church, the ministers, can't get on the same page about that, what in the world are we supposed to expect? What would we expect that the people should believe? Are you out there? 
Do you see where I'm coming from? Now, I've also heard this this week. Well, Pastor Mike just said that about the sheep and the goats because he's frustrated about the size of the church. Folks, honestly, there's very little I can do to increase the size of the church. Now, I can get a crowd for one Sunday. We can have a raffle and give away a car or vacation or something like that. <laughs> but then what do we do next week? Because whatever you, try to, whatever you hook people on, you've got to keep them with that. I know of people that have very little, if any, spiritual development whatsoever. And the same thing's true with spiritual character. Very little spiritual character. And they've got church, bigger churches than I may ever have. And I also know th- uh, of the other side of the coin. I know of people, men that are very, very spiritual. Men that have committed themselves to God and are, are, uh, live holy and sanctified lives that may never pastor a big church in their life. See, the, the, the easy thing is to say, well, the better the pastor is, the bigger the church is. Folks, that doesn't work. Just doesn't work. So I've come to realize I have very little to say so to say about or influence over the size of the church. My attitude has always been to give you the most that I can to make church worthwhile, and then you'll want to come. That used to be true a lot more than it is now. Because a lot of the church is being sucked into this, well, just go when you can or when it's convenient stuff. However, I am frustrated. I live in what I call peaceful discontent. I don't worry. I'm frustrated only in the sense that frustration is, uh, is something that leads you to change. But there is a constant discontent on the inside of me. And I use that discontent to pursue the things of God. I want to learn more about God. I want to learn more about his word. And it's that discontent that pushes me forward. So, yeah, I am frustrated. But you don't have anything to do with that. I'm frustrated because, and will always be frustrated or discontented, until I see in reality what the Bible says they had, meaning the early church. I'm always going to be there. So when I talk about sheep and goats, I'm talking about you judging your own heart. I'm not talking about me judging your heart. See, I couldn't look at you and determine whether or not you're lukewarm or hot or cold. You might do something while I'm looking to make me think, wow, they're really turned on to God. And all the time that it was a show. I might catch you at a time where it looks to me like you're not concerned about the things of God. When that might be just an isolated incident rather than an attitude of your heart. But here's the the real issue. If we never examine ourselves in this light, how are we ever going to know to change? See, some people just got mad. They thought I was calling them goats because they didn't come to church, which tells me they're under conviction about something. (laughs) If the comment about sheep and goats got you, you might want to examine yourself. Because I didn't mean anything bad by it. And there's no guarantee that if everybody that considered Foothill Family Church to be their church home attended every week, that we'd have a move of the Holy Ghost. That in itself, in and of itself, by itself, doesn't do the job. Are you with me? Well, then I've really got some things to tell you. Now, I want you to turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. With that in mind, let's learn some lessons from Corinth. 
Now, the Corinthian church is what we would consider to be an anomaly because they had a moving of the Holy Ghost in their midst that uh, is different than Paul identified to any other church that he wrote to. They had a mo- more of a move of God than any other church that Paul wrote to or at least identified in his writings. Yet they were a messed up church. See, the idea is the better the church gets, the more we learn to live above sin and, and put away the things of the flesh and stuff like that, then that's what makes the Holy Ghost move. And that's not true with Corinth. Notice in chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says, so that you come behind in no good gift. Brother Hagin used to say it this way. He used to say that has to mean that they had all the manifestations of the Spirit in operation. Because it's to this church in chapter 12 that Paul's going to write, here's how the Holy Ghost manifests. But now let's examine the church. He tells them in chapter 3 that they're carnal Christians. So being spiritually mature is not the criteria for the Holy Ghost to move. Can't be. If so, the Holy Ghost Ghost wouldn't have been moving among them. He says that there's divisions among them. The church at, uh, at Corinth is interesting to me because it's the only church that we don't know for certain that Paul started that it lasted past one generation. Now, it may have. There's a church in Corinth now. And it may have, but we do not have a continuous record like we do of every other church that Paul started regarding Corinth. He said there were carnal. He said there were divisions among them. And then in chapter 5, he says, man, there's sin among you that's worse than the sin of the Gentiles, the unsaved. Where the, father was living with it, where the son was living with his father's wife. So it's not the absence of sin that caused the Holy Ghost to move among them, is it? Well, what about doctrine? Maybe they were real strong on doctrine. Well, look with me over to chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let me show you how strong their doctrine was. Paul said, we'll start reading, we'll take some of this out of context. Paul said in verse 27, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily. Now, the word unworthily is an unworthy manner. It doesn't mean unworthy. You're made worthy by the blood of Jesus. So he's talking about the communion and the partaking of communion. He's saying if you don't have the right attitude toward communion when you take it, then you shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Well, I don't want that, do you? I wouldn't think that they would want that. But then Paul's going to describe a little further what they're doing and why. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, unworthy manner... They're, already, they're saved, so they're already made worthy by the blood of Jesus, but they have the wrong attitude toward what they're doing. He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation. This is not go to hell damnation, it's condemnation. Guilt unto himself. Not discerning the Lord's body. Not discerning the Lord's body. Now he's just identified in the previous verses one thing that they're doing, not discerning the Lord's body. They're not partaking of the thing with the other guy in mind. Some of them are taking the Lord's Supper and acting like it's dinner. And so they're eating as much as they want to eat. And other people aren't, don't have the opportunity to participate because all the stuff's gone by the time they get to the table. So they're not looking out for one another. But then he talks about not discerning the Lord's body in a different context too. 
He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation, condemnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. One translation says many died prematurely. Now here's an interesting thought. If 1 Corinthians 1-7 is true, where they've got the moving of the Holy Ghost, they don't come behind in any good gift, they've got the moving of the Holy Ghost in full manifestation. Chapter 12 is going to tell us that full manifestation of the Holy Ghost is going to include gifts of healings. So they've got gifts of healings in their midst, yet they're not discerning or appreciating the fact that the body and the blood of the Lord means Jesus shed his blood and took stripes upon his back for the healing of the physical body doesn't sound like too strong a doctrine to me you got the holy ghost doing miracles in your midst you got the holy ghost operating in gifts of healings in your midst and you're not too strong on jesus having taken your infirmities and borne your sicknesses don't tell me it's doctrine that made him Eligible for the move of the Holy Ghost. It's not. Well, what is it about this group? What are we to learn from the church at Corinth? I mean, let's face it. If these things just happen, and many times people say that these things just happen at the will of God and we don't have any control over it. Well, folks, let's examine when this is. This letter is written from the, from the city of Ephesus on Paul's third missionary journey. In 55 A.D., it's 20-plus years after the Holy Ghost was poured out in Acts chapter 2. This is not part of the same move of God that was taking place in Jerusalem. There's not a move of God taking place everywhere. 20 years later, they have created their own move of God in their own church. This is five years after Paul established the church. He established the church on his second missionary journey five years earlier. Now he's writing back to the church five years later. 22-ish or so years, 20-plus years, after the Holy Ghost is born, poured out or the church is born, they've created their own move of God. How? Not through right living. Not through sexual purity. Not through unity in the body. How have they done it? See, folks, if this church... If there's any church that the American church ought to be able to use as a flag to say, Lord, we're sin as much as them. Lord, we're just as divided as they are. You ought to be able to move through us too. Now, now granted, that shouldn't be our, our marks of credibility, but it does fit. What is it about this group that enabled them to have a move of the Holy Ghost. If we can figure it out for them, we can figure it out for us. Can't we? See, you start talking about the move of the Holy Ghost, and God starts working on people's hearts, and people get scared. They get scared first and foremost about, what am I going to have to do to change? That's when you start examining yourself and you figure out, well, there are things that I'm doing wrong that I don't want to really quit doing. And if it's going to take giving up all these things and the things of the world and the things of the flesh and comforts and so forth, if that's what it takes, which is what everybody says means when you serve God or follow after him with all your heart, a lot of people aren't into that. A lot of people would rather go to church, let other people do the work, take advantage of whatever there is and just live their lives. 
Now, I don't know what you would call that if it's not lukewarm. God has a real dim view. We looked over in Revelation chapter 3. God has a real dim view of people that take that attitude. And folks, I'm not saying that because you have that attitude, God doesn't love you because he does. I'm not saying because you have that attitude, you don't love God because I believe you do. I love God just as much then, at least in my own opinion, I love God just as much then as I loved him now. But there were things in other parts and other times of my life that I didn't want to give up. Well, why is that? Because it's just a function of the flesh. It's just a function of the flesh. I cannot tell you how many times people come to me and say, Pastor Mike, I watch your TV show, watch it every week or record it, whatever. Watch your TV show every week. You say, I've been meaning to come to your church, but Sunday is the only day I can sleep in. Well, thanks for watching. It's not up to me. I'm not the one that judges. I didn't put the TV show on so that everybody that watched it would be compelled to come. If people want to come, they're certainly welcome. We want them to. Because I think there are things you can get from church that you can't get from the TV show. But that's not up to me or anybody else to judge. That's for us to judge for ourselves. And that's the very issue that Paul presents to the Corinthian church. You're going to have to judge yourselves. You're going to have to decide what you're going to do. Now, what is the problem in Paul's writings? And I'm I'm taking for granted that you know something about the book, the letter that he wrote. What is Paul's issue with the Corinthian church? Twofold. He wants them to grow up through the knowledge of the word. And secondly, he wants to bring order to their services. The problem with the Corinthian church that Paul corrects or addresses is unity or walking in love and order. Those are his issues. How does he do that? Well, let's start in chapter 12. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. Notice that he's identifying that even though you've got the Holy Ghost in full manifestation, you're ignorant. So it's not knowledge that makes the Holy Ghost move. Can't be. Can it? Now the word spiritual means things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. So everything he's talking about for the next, four, the next three chapters are things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. What's the first thing he does? He tells how the Holy Ghost moves. He says this is how the Holy Ghost manifests. First of all, the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, and discerning of spirits, or what we call revelation gifts. Secondly, He manifests himself through special faith, gifts of healings, and working of miracles, or what we call power gifts. Thirdly, he manifests himself through diversities of tongues, interpretation of tongues, and prophecy, or what we call vocal gifts. Now, why would Paul tell the church this is how the Holy Ghost moves? Because clearly they're having things operate and and take place in their midst that because of their lack of knowledge about how the Holy Ghost moves and what the Holy Ghost does when he moves... They're having all kinds of things happen that they think is God, and it's not. That's why he starts off in the second and the third verses talking about when the Holy Ghost is in manifestation, this is what he does. He magnifies Jesus. And anybody that's magnifying Jesus when the Holy Ghost is in manifestation is doing so by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. What does that tell us? That tells us that there are things that are taking place in and among them 
that are not magnifying Jesus that Paul is very simply saying, that's not the Holy Ghost. Now, what keeps them from knowing that on their own? Well, it's a lack of knowledge. They're not operating in right doctrine. Now, here's a question I've got that nobody can answer for me. I'll have to wait till I get to heaven on this. Did Paul teach them these things before and they just lost them? Or did he not teach them when he was there? If he didn't teach them when he was there, how in the world did these people get to move in the Holy Ghost like they did? Like I said, I'm not looking for you to answer that for me. I'll get the answer when I get to heaven. But it's things like this that make me scratch my head and say, there's only one possible conclusion that we can draw from this, and that is God will overcome our ignorance. He'll overcome our lack of holiness or holy lifestyle. He'll overcome almost anything and everything there is for the Holy Ghost to move because this is the dispensation of the Holy Ghost. See, what I'm trying to get across to you folks is the Bible teaches us. I don't care about what your experience is. But the Bible teaches us that getting God to move is not a hard thing. Yet it seems to be the big mystery for all of us. Well, there is a secret to it. And that's a secret that most of the church hadn't tapped into. And if anything, that's what I'm trying to adjust. Folks, my only agenda here in in any of this is to lead us into the things that are in your best interest, in my best interest, and in our church family's best interest. That's all I want. And I won't be happy until we get there. And if I die before we get there, God owes me an apology. I mean that sincerely. He's the one that put it in my heart. If he put it in my heart to pursue and not give it to me, we're going to have to have a talk when I get there. It'll be a respectful one. But I need, I'll need some answers. So what's the deal here? Paul identifies first and foremost, here's how the Holy Ghost moves. Now, these are all things pertaining to the Holy Ghost. Notice what he says in verse 11. But all these worketh, meaning all of the nine manifestations that we just identified. Revelation gifts, power gifts, and vocal gifts. All these worketh that one in the self-same spirit, dividing to every man. Everybody say every. That doesn't mean part of them. That means every man. That means God intends to use everybody. He won't use everybody in the same way, but he intends to use everybody. Why? Because this is the dispensation of the Holy Ghost. That's what Peter's preaching in Acts 2. This is that which was spoken by Joel, the prophet. But all these worketh that one in the selfsame spirit, dividing to every man severally. Severally means more than one. It also means specifically. As he wills. For things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body being many or one body, so also is Christ. And he talks about how the, the church is supposed to work together like a body. Body has an eye, it has a hand, it has a foot. You can't interchange parts. One part can't say to the other part, I'm more important than you, or you're more important than me. Now, why in the world would Paul, by the Holy Ghost, think about this. This is the Holy Ghost telling us things concerning him. Through Paul. Here's the Holy Ghost describing himself, how he works and, and, and the function and so forth. This is the Holy Ghost telling you specifically, here's how I work. 
Now, what could be more important for us to know in the dispensation of the Holy Ghost? The period of time when the Holy Ghost works, other than the Holy Ghost giving us a first-hand account, here's how I operate. Now, you know as well as I do that this is a chapter that the church fights over. Isn't that coincidental? Because the devil knows if he can get the church fighting over the, the, the instruction that the Holy Ghost gave about how he works, he can hinder the Holy Ghost from working in the dispensation that the Holy Ghost is given to work. Well, if we have a church who is instructed by Jesus to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Ghost to, in order to reach the world, trying to reach the world without the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, what have we got? The modern-day church. Powerless, weak, without influence. But important enough that the devil knows he has to shut us down. Important enough that the devil knows in our own country that we better stir up some persecution against the church. Why? Because if they ever wake up, his goose is cooked. And folks, that's exactly what's going on around us. That's why there's no political party for the church left anymore. There may be individuals in political parties that are, that are still strong and so forth, but that's why there's no political party for the church. I used to say I was a Republican. They left me. They left me when they started agreeing with the devil's agenda. Well, where do we go politically? Politically, I don't have anywhere to go politically. I've got a couple of guys in the race that I like at this point. Some guys I thought I liked and I found out more about them and I don't like them anymore. But even if the guy that I like, the guy that I wind up liking gets in office, then what? Is that individual going to be able to turn around a system that's controlled by the devil? I don't have an answer for that, folks. We may be past the point of no return. What does that mean? If we are, what does that mean? For me, it means our only hope is in God and through prayer. Which ought to be our go-to position anyway. Don't you think? So the Holy Ghost is telling us, here's how I operate. I'll manifest myself in one of these nine ways. Revelation gifts, vocal gifts, and power gifts. But then the church works together like a body. Everybody's supposed to have a part. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. And I, it's a rhetorical question. What's supposed to be your part? The Bible says specifically, you have a part. If you don't know your part, how can you operate effectively? And that's the point Paul makes. He says every part of the body has to work together in order for it to work properly. What's your part? The Bible's clear on saying you have one. What is your part? I would submit to you folks that the vast majority of the church has no idea that they're even supposed to be a part. Which again is another example why the church is so powerless in the modern day. In my opinion. So Paul says, here's how the, or the Holy Ghost says through Paul, here's how the body works. Everybody is supposed to have a function. Everybody is supposed to have a part. Everybody has an equal part, although it may not be looked at as equal. In God's eyes, one part is just as important as the other part. For what purpose? Verse 25. 
In my opinion, verse 25 is the key to the whole thing. Here's the purpose for the Holy Ghost functioning. We know how he functions. He functions by one of the nine manifestations identified earlier in the chapter. It tells us that the body works together and everybody's supposed to have a part in order for things to work properly. What is the purpose, verse 25, that there should be no schism or lack or division in the body, but that the members should have the same care one to another? What is Paul telling a church that's divided? He's telling, telling them very specifically, you need to know things about the Holy Ghost. First of all, the Holy Ghost will manifest himself in specific ways, these nine specific ways, not any and every other way that, he might, that you think he's doing now but in these nine specific ways. Secondly, everybody's supposed to work together so that nobody's missing out on anything in the body. In other words, the moving of the Holy Ghost is not supposed to be about you and how God's using you. The moving of the Holy Ghost is supposed to be with the attitude that Lord moves so that the other guy is blessed and helped. It's talking about changing their attitude toward one another. It's talking about walking in love. That's further identified by chapter 13 being all about love. He said, I'm showing you a more excellent way. These are the ministry gifts. The end of chapter 12. These are the, the ministry gifts, the ones God set in the, sets in the church. But let me show you the most excellent way. The most excellent way is to walk in love. Don't seek after your own. Don't take into account of evil done unto you and so forth. What is he talking about? He's talking about things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. Now let's back up for a minute. What did we find out was the operation of the early church, the pattern of the early church when there was a move of God in Jerusalem? They were united in doctrine. They were united in fellowship, or meaning walking in love toward one another, and they were united in prayer. What has Paul told them so far? He's told them doctrine in order for them to be united about the move of the Holy Ghost. He's telling them now about walking in love toward one another. There's only one missing ingredient. What's the missing ingredient? Prayer. Well, what does Paul start talking about after chapter 13? The operation of tongues in the church. The operation of tongues in the church. What does he tell them? He tells them in chapter 14, verse 2. He said, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. When you speak in tongues, you're not talking to one another, so don't worry about who's hearing you. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. When you're speaking in other tongues, you're not talking for people's benefit, which is what they were doing in their services. He goes on and says that when people come to your services, they don't know God. They don't know anything about the baptism of the Holy Ghost. They hear you speaking in tongues. They think you're crazy. So he brings order to it. How does he bring order? By letting them know, here's what tongues are about. No question that they're using them. No question that they're operating in tongues. But now he says, here's the purpose for tongues. The purpose for tongues is to speak to God. And what are you supposed to speak to him? Divine secrets or mysteries. What was the church in Jerusalem doing in Acts chapter 4 when they were threatened by the Jewish council? They were let go and went to their own company. And they, they reported all that the chief priests and elders said. They lifted up their voice to God with one accord and prayed. Lord, grant unto your servants boldness that they may speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the holy child Jesus. What are they doing? They're speaking divine secrets to God. Those are what mysteries are, folks. It's praying the will of God in the spirit language that the Holy Ghost gives you. 
Now, that's the example that we have where the Holy Ghost reveals to us what he gave them to say and how he interpreted it for us. Now, you can come up with your own interpretation if you want to, but that's the one God gave us. Are you with me? Verse 3, but he that prophesies speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifies himself. To edify means to build up. Literally means to put the roof on the house. Literally means to put the roof on the house. We sometimes use it in in, uh, an electrical sense because it means to charge up like a battery as well. But the the Hebrew, um, uh, I'm sorry, the Greek um, illustration for the word is to put a roof on a house. In other words, the Holy Ghost will do repairs. The Holy Ghost will do repairs. Now, what's the church doing? The church is trying to repair things without the Holy Ghost. The church is trying to accomplish the work of God without the power of God. And the church is trying to accomplish whatever repairs they think need to be made in their own lives through the power of the flesh. And you can't do it. You just can't do it. So what are we to do? Use the supernatural ability that God's given us to speak in other tongues through the baptism of the Holy Ghost, to speak in other tongues, because he that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifies himself. That means to charge yourself, strengthen yourself spiritually. It means to make repairs spiritually. But he that prophesies edifies or builds up the church. Now, notice what Paul said in verse 5. He said, I would that you all speak with tongues. Folks, he's not saying start speaking in tongues. They're already doing that. They're already doing that. The one characteristic, if we pull out everything about the Corinthian church, the one characteristic that we can say is not that they're holy. They're not. Not that they're spiritually mature, because they're not. Not that they're walking in love, because they're not. Not that they're without sin in their church, because they're not. What's the one element that we can say about the Holy Ghost, uh, about the church at Corinth relative to the move of the Holy Ghost? They speak in other tongues. That's it. That's it. You can't find one other thing that Paul identifies or commends these people for that winds up being anything more than just a compliment to get him to listen to what he's saying. The one element that they have is that they speak in other tongues. Now, remember what we talked about, the principles of the early church? They were in one accord in doctrine, one accord in breaking of bread and fellowship, meaning walking in love toward one another. They were in unity. And third, prayer. What is the one element about this church? Not doctrine, not unity, but prayer, speaking in other tongues. So Paul says, I would that you all speak with tongues. You're doing great speaking in tongues, but... He's bringing order. He does not say, you folks need to stop that tongue-talking things. That's going to pass away pretty soon anyway, so just give that up. That's not what he says. He says, I would that you all spake with tongues, but rather that you prophesied. For greater is he that prophesies than he that speaks with tongues, except he interpret that the church may receive edifying. So what's he talking about? He's saying, when you come together, I'd rather you speak in a language that everybody can hear. And understand. Paul goes further. 
and says in verse 18, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all, yet in the church. Verse 19, yet in the church. What is Paul saying? Now, here's something we need to get about Paul, who started moves of God nearly everywhere that he went. Not instantly. Sometimes he was there for months. But sooner or later, preaching the word, after a period of time, a miracle would take place and cities would be turned upside down. Notice what Paul said about his own life. He said, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than any of you. Just not in the church. Just not in the church. So it indicates that God doesn't use Paul much in tongues and interpretation in public services. Well, then when does Paul speak in other tongues? Well, if it's not in the church, it must be outside the church in his own private prayer life. What's he trying to get them to do? Quit using up all your church service time for speaking in tongues and pray in other tongues when you're by yourselves in your daily lives. What is he doing? Is he trying to stop the move of the Holy Ghost? No, he's trying to bring order to it. He's trying to bring order to it so that people are blessed and that the, the gospel is preached with a witness. Now think about the church at Corinth. They've got signs and wonders taking place. They come behind a no good gift, which means miracles and gifts of healings and so forth. Power gifts. But the city is not won by the miracles. Why? Because they're conducting themselves in such a way that everybody thinks they're nuts. Nuts with miracles, but nuts. Are you following me? Folks, this is real, real important. I'm trying to make it simple. But this is super important. So what is the Holy Ghost revealing? He's revealing how he operates. He's revealing the importance of, of the body working together. In other words, the purpose, our purpose for wanting the move of the Holy Ghost shouldn't be so that God sees, so that people see God using me, but so that everybody is helped as God sees fit. How are we going to bring that about? In their case, by altering the way that they're operating in tongues. Not stopping it. He's not saying you need to pray more in other tongues. Because every time they're praying in tongues, whether they know it or not, the Holy Ghost is praying for the Holy Ghost to move because that's what he does. He gives us utterance to pray that the Holy Ghost will move. Why? Because this is the time period, the dispensation for the Holy Ghost. Folks, I would submit to you that there's not a problem that you'll ever face that won't be fixed by the moving of the Holy Ghost. Now, we don't look at it like that. We think, oh, my God, we've got rent due. Our bills are stacking up. Lord, help us. Give us money. Give us a new job. Give us a new house. Give us a new car. Give me, give me, give me. And I would submit to you, folks, that there is not one issue, not one problem, not one area of life that you'll ever have a problem that is not and will not be fixed by the moving of the Holy Ghost. Because here's something about the Holy Ghost. When the Holy Ghost begins to move, it's like a river. It just sweeps you along with it. Did you notice when the Holy Ghost began to move, they didn't have any money trouble? Everybody had all things in common. Can I ask you a question? How do you get Jews to sell things and give to other people? I don't mean that to be unkind. I don't mean that to be smart aleck. But the Jews know they're in danger. They have to keep their stuff with them. Because at any moment, 
One of the same things that have happened throughout history could happen again, and they need to be able to move at a moment's notice. That's the attitude of the Jews. Something has changed them to be willing to give up their stuff for people that are just part of the family of God now that they may not have even liked last week. Something's happened. That's what takes place when the move of the Holy Ghost. Haggai chapter 2 has a very interesting phrase, a very interesting verse. Uh, Verse 7 says, And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. He goes further to say that the glory of the last day church will be greater than the glory of the former. That former could be the, the temple of Solomon where the priest couldn't stand to minister because of the reason of the cloud, the presence of God. Or it could be the former days of the church what we'll read about in the book of Acts. I think both are true. I think the move of God in the last day, the latter reign, is going to be greater than anything the church has ever seen before. But right on the heels of verse 7, where it talks about the glory of God being seen in all the the earth, it says in verse 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine. Folks, there's got to be a connection. God connected silver and gold with glory. But what happens? So much of the church world pursues the gold Forgets about the glory of God. When the answer to the gold problem is the glory of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added to you. So what does Paul tell him? He says, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all yet in the church. I'd rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Why in the world is Paul telling them that he'd rather speak in a language they can hear and understand than speak in other tongues during a church service or church gathering? Because, folks, the more knowledge you gain of the truth of God's word, the more you'll be able to cooperate effectively with the Holy Ghost so that he can move the way that he wants to. I've always been intrigued by the scripture that tells us about how that Jesus looked over Jerusalem and wept. He said, oh, Jerusalem, how many times I would have gathered you to myself as a hen to gather her little chicks, but you would not. I've often wondered how many people are in the same boat where God is not able to do things that he wants to do with them and for them and through them. Should we not examine ourselves to make sure that we're not in that same boat? Should we not examine ourselves regularly, consistently, to make sure that we're not in a position where we're hindering God from doing what he wants to do? I mean, look at Jesus in Nazareth, Mark chapter 6. And he could, in his own hometown of Nazareth, do there do no mighty work. Doesn't say that he wouldn't, said he couldn't. He went in teaching them that he's anointed by the Holy Ghost to heal, but he couldn't heal. Why? He marveled because of their unbelief. So God was not able, he was prevented from doing the things that he wanted to do in them and among them. Yet how much of the church world sits back and says, well, whatever God wants is the way it's going to be. Apparently not so in Jesus' ministry. Apparently not so where Jerusalem was concerned. What if God wants to do things with our church that he's not able to do because we won't participate? 
What if God wants to do things with our church? What if he, there's a move of God that he wants to institute or, or initiate among us that will heal the sick, do signs and wonders and miracles, and bring thousands of people into the kingdom of God that he's not able to do because we won't do our part? You think we won't answer for that when we get there? We will. I got a better idea. Let's cooperate. How do we do that? Folks, the same elements that we see in the early days in Jerusalem are the elements that Paul identifies with the Corinthians. Understand what the Holy Ghost does and what his purpose is. Walk in love toward one another and pray in the Spirit. Same three elements. Same three elements. What do you think God wants for us? Exactly the same. Now, folks, we've laid a foundation of the word that gives the Holy Ghost perfect opportunity to move. We've taught you to walk in love. That's a challenge for us every day and always will be. But we can choose, no matter what somebody else does to us, no matter what else is going on around us, we can choose to walk in love and not harbor unforgiveness against any one other person. But the third part is really the key, for us at least. The third part is to get every member of the body of Christ, every member that considers this to be their home church, praying for the move of the Holy Ghost and for the healing of the sick. If we'll do that, if we'll take that on as a job, church will be, well, what? It will be an awesome experience. I want to make sure that I don't say it in the wrong way. But church will be something that people will run to get to. And it won't have anything to do with me. It won't have anything to do with you. It'll be a place where people know that God answers prayers. That's what it comes down to. That's what it comes down to. So what's the devil's part? To get you so tied up, you're too busy to pray. To get you so distracted... You don't care as much about praying for the other guy as you do getting God to answer your own needs. That's what he's working overtime on now. But what does the Bible tell us to do? Zechariah 10.1. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. That's the type of the Holy Ghost. Ask the Lord to move by the Holy Spirit in the time, the dispensation of the Holy Ghost. That's our time. So the Lord shall make bright clouds... It indicates both a display of his power and a manifestation of his presence. And give them showers of rain. He'll give us showers of rain. You've got a guarantee from God. If we'll pray for the move of the Holy Ghost, he'll give us the move of the Holy Ghost. No ifs, ands, or buts. And he tells us what the result of that will be too. Those showers of rain will bring to everyone grass in the field. In other words, the precious fruit of the earth, people being one into the kingdom of God. Just like in Acts chapter 5, verse, what was it, verse 14 and 15? Believers were the more added to the Lord daily, such as should be saved in so much as they brought the sick into the streets. It was the healing of the sick that brought believers into the kingdom of God daily. Well, if that was God's pattern in the early days of the church, why would we think his pattern has changed? It hasn't. Hadn't changed a bit. That's still his pattern today. Healing has always been the dinner bell, folks. 
Healing has always been the dinner bell. F.F. Bosworth said that he started off as an evangelist. And he'd get people saved here and there in his crusades. But when God started dealing with him about teaching on healing, divine healing, and he did, the crowds grew and people started getting healed. He said, we get a hundred times the people saved now that we did when I was just preaching evangelism or evangelistically. We get a hundred times more people saved in our crusades and in our campaigns. Why? Because healing is the dinner bell. Healing shows the power of God that we're trying to get people to come and give their lives to. That's why Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel, but wait till you receive the power of the Spirit first. He'll empower you to be witnesses. God still wants his people to be witnesses. He still wants the power of the Holy Ghost to demonstrate that we are witnesses of the truth of Jesus' resurrection that we're preaching. Amen? Well, let's all stand.